2: Hello to all our listeners. Yes, indeed. You're listening to Soft Talk Radio. I'm Neil Bradley. Together in the studio with me today is my co-host, Joe Quinn. Hi there. Also joining us are Pierre Lesclaudon. Hello. And Laura Najajic.
0: Hi, everybody.
2: <clears throat> this week, we're talking with a very special guest, Nora Gigoudas. Nora is a nutritional therapist, speaker, and educator. She's widely recognized as an expert on the paleo diet. She has a private practice in Portland, Oregon, and she's both a board-certified nutritional consultant and a board-certified clinical neurofeedback specialist. She is the author of best-selling book, Primal Body, Primal Mind, Beyond the Paleo Diet for Total Health and a Longer Life, a book that's changing the way people view their diet and health. Welcome to the show, Nora.
3: Well, oh, thank you so much for having me. It's really great to be here. I, I love what you guys are doing, and I'd say the intro of your show pretty well sums it up. <laughs>
2: <laughs> thank you. Thank you, yeah. Nora. I should probably begin by saying that many of our online forum members have been experimenting with, with going paleo, and they've been reporting excellent results. So they'll be excellent. familiar with your book. Your book's been a super help to that, that sort of experiment. Um, so, yeah, on behalf of us and everyone else, thank you.
3: Well, you're very welcome. I, you know, it's been a passion of mine almost my whole life to, you know, to to learn about, you know, diet and health and to also be able to help as many others as I possibly can with what I've learned. And, of course, as I'm sure you guys recognize, I've had to... Uh, step well out of the box to find the information that i found it's not the kind of thing taught to conventional nutritionists and 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 medical practitioners uh those kinds of educational uh mainstream education is largely driven by the interests of industry so um Mm. it really is a lot of work to get at what's really going on
1: absolutely couldn't agree with that more um uh, as you As you often say, maybe uh, not so much in your book, but as you often say in in other forums or venues uh follow the money um,
3: yeah it's true
1: in terms of trying to find out why uh things are as they are in in terms of uh, the health of right. people in, on the planet today
3: right, and in the face of all the contrary evidence um and in fact you know the more the contrary evidence comes. To the surface, the more uh viciously entrenched the status quo becomes, and so we're
4: mm-hmm.
3: we're reaching i think ahead in in, in a in a lot of uh, on a lot of fronts, not just in the field of nutrition and diet and health but you know uh economically and politically and environmentally in so many places and um um you know it Industry is not going to go down without a fight, but I I see this sort of heartening uh, level of awareness and consciousness happening in the populace and the general populace. They're they're sort of starting to wake up and figure out that things aren't quite as they have always been told. So that really helps people like me get a, a message out there that may not be what they've been told all their lives.
0: Nora, let me ask you a question. Um, Did you become interested in pursuing uh, the study of health and um, wellness because you had any kind of problems yourself, or was this just something that uh, interested you because you were um, attracted to uh, uh, the subject subject
3: matter? Yeah, the subject. I was just finishing Um, your sentence for you. Thank you. yeah sorry um it's a little of both uh there it was probably uh it was probably just uh, my last year in in high school some of i started kind of stumbling across <clears throat> information along these lines not not along the lines of of the paleo diet mind you but but just sort of nutritional science and things that that I found really interesting, and as I got into college, I became exposed to a lot more information, and there was something about it that resonated so strongly with me that it really became, you know, my obsession and what it was I became preoccupied with all the while I was about doing other things I thought I should be doing instead. So nutritional science was something that I started out um, really engaging in in all my free time yeah, uh, you know evenings and weekends and whenever it was i had time and it was the subject of most of the books that i read and most of the things that i spent you know time on the off hour studying but it never occurred to me that that was something that you know i would pursue as a long-term career i just thought okay well this is just super interesting to me but uh but as time went on uh you know i i be, in, became increasingly aware of Uh, of a problem that I had, which was a lifelong struggle with depression, uh, which later kind of devolved into, you know, just full-blown anxiety and and panic attacks that really weren't responsive to anything. And so I was digging in a lot of uh, different places for answers to the way I felt. Um, I initially just sort of made the assumption when I was about 13 years old and became aware that there was something you know kind of wrong with me that it was that it was me somehow that that I, there was some deep dark thing wrong with me that I needed to find and dig up and and have somebody help me fix so that I could feel better about my own life and 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 do more with it and Uh, Around that time, of course, in those days, depression was something seen as a psychological disorder. So if you're depressed, you go sit down and talk to somebody about your problems, and hopefully they help you sort things out and you feel better. Well, you know, for me, I think what was underlying, I mean, there certainly were things going on in my life at the time and in my family of origin and other things that made it very logical for me to be depressed. But I think there was also, in addition to that, a physiological component that that people really didn't think much about at the time, and so i started at at that time in my life seeking out counseling, seeking out people who could help me sort through these things, and went through quite a different number of uh, you know counselors, therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists back before they became pill people um, and and tried to sort out, you know, the angst of my life. I actually got quite a bit of good, uh, quite a number of good things from that. Particularly once I found a particular therapist who uh, had actually done their own work. <laughs> it was yeah, kind of uh, almost unusual. Surprise! Uh, surprise! Certainly at the time was unusual. And uh, she was actually able to help me become aware of things that no one else ever had, and and it was allow it allowed me to. Radically improve the quality of my relationships, well, my relationship with myself and also other people in in life in general, in a way that had not prior to that been possible. So, but it was interesting because we ended up hitting a wall in our progress that neither of us could identify. Which a few years later uh, became apparent that, uh, well, you know, it was brought to my attention that oh, you know, this might not have anything to do with with your Family of origin history, this might be due to a biochemical imbalance. And so at the time there was a big push because there, you know, Prozac had just been released and tryptophan of course at the same time had been taken off the market, interestingly. And, uh, and there seemed to be a lot of promise in addressing the way I felt using uh, more biochemical things. Now, mind you, up to that point, I had also become aware of the fact that there were a lot of things I could do nutritionally to change the way I felt. So I knew the biochemical piece was, was there somehow. And I discovered, uh, the utilization. I discovered, you know, Eric Braverman's book, Healing Nutrients from Within, which doesn't sound like a particularly technical book, but it's really a textbook on, on the subject of amino acid therapy that's been out for, gosh, I don't know, 20, 30 years now. Um, and it really kind of is the go-to place. And then people since then, like Julia Ross, have sort of taken up that charge and have published things on that, and, and i certainly written about it as well. But I was studying what kinds of chemicals are the precursors to the neurotransmitters that help me feel better, et cetera. And I found that I was actually able to make some headway with those things. It was it was useful information. But, of course, if I forgot to take those things or um, or you know whatever have you it i also found that uh i i could backslide pretty quickly um and so there was something foundational missing but there were also i i think maybe timing issues and and what have you in my in my brain that were going on at the same time that i was later later able to address using a therapeutic modality or a training modality perhaps uh better said uh called neurofeedback and
4: mm-hmm.
3: neurofeedback is what ultimately liberated me uh it was like the little the li- the one missing piece that i think was able to flip a switch and take everything i was doing uh, nutritionally and make it uh enormously viable for me in a way that has allowed me to maintain the benefits of what i got from neurofeedback ever since very very powerful stuff so that's how I, I got going in the field and uh but for many, many years uh I pursued nutrition as a you know sort of topic by topic, uh supplement by supplement, I became extremely knowledgeable about a lot of things, about a lot of minutiae. That was sort of my thing was the minutiae. But I Started to kind of come to the realization that I didn't have any underlying cohesive principle or foundation that my nutritional philosophy was able to emanate from. That it was just kind of grabbing pieces of things together and trying to trying to fit them into some kind of into some kind of picture. But um, it didn't all make sense uh, until the day I stumbled across the work of Weston Price, and mm-hmm. that opened my eyes a bit. And caused me to think more in, you know, Western Price, of course, looked at a lot of traditional cultures as well as so-called right. primitive cultures, but I thought, well, it seems to me the answers need to be further back than some of this, that that, that really the foundational aspects of, of all of this really have to be in how we evolved. And so I began pushing back further and further and in, in looking at the our very genetic origins from you know the uh, oldest primordial seas to see what it is that that drives our physiology, what would drives the the composition and and, um, and how our physiological makeup functions, as well as what kinds of things established our nutritional requirements. And it turns out that there's some. I see that as an essential starting place. And it's incredibly right. powerful to do that. I don't think it's the whole picture because we're being challenged with things today that are way beyond anything that our primitive ancestors um, ever had to ever had to deal with. Uh, right. We have a very right. different environment. Mm-hmm. We have a very different food supply. And I think what I tried to do in my book was apply what I learned uh, through all of that And through this study, uh, this sort of evolutionary history, apply it to the world that we live in today and also look at what's happening in modern human longevity research and see if there's a way of applying some of these underlying principles to what science has found. And it turns out Mm -hmm. that there's, there's a wonderful way of combining these things that is just immensely powerful.
0: I agree. Um, I, you know, started my own search because of personal health issues after having an illness when I was nine years old, and following which uh, there was an autoimmune response triggered that I struggled with for, you know, up until two thousand eight. At which point I had a about my sixth surgery, and the kind Of reamed out and rebuilt my shoulder because I had so much calcium calcification of my uh, you know, tendons, and uh, it, you know, I was just terribly arthritic. And yeah. uh, and I knew that you know, it's now or never. I'm 62 years old, and I feel like I'm 20 because I've been detoxing and you know, eating meat and fat for the last well, since starting in 2008. I started August 2nd, 2008. Oh, great. So, and that's yep. that's how we found your work because I went step by step. I started with uh, Sherry Rogers' Detoxifier Die. and mm-hmm. of course, I uh, since we run a nonprofit, uh, we decided to engage in you know large scale uh, dietary experiments. Um, we had a, a, a pool of. Uh, people with various autoimmune conditions that uh, we thought, well, we'll try all of this out step by step. You know, We'll get fur infrared saunas and we'll do that. We'll do these detox cocktails and lay in the sauna for an hour and a half a day. And, and step by step by step, we uh, found one book and another book and then the next and then the next. And we kept refining what we were doing up to the point where uh I, last year we did the experiment with uh intermittent fasting protein restriction and we did it for 8 weeks and and weightlifting uh every one of us i mean it was like uh it was like an incredible experience because we could actually feel our dna changing and it it caused flu-like symptoms for a period of time but there was something really powerful going on and none of us has been the same since at all sure. absolutely <laughs> it's just It's really marvelous, Uh, but I wanted to ask you, do you see, um, you're talking about the different therapies, uh, and you're talking about the uh, neurofeedback or the biofeedback. Yeah, Yeah, neurofeedback. Do you see that as being somewhat similar to today's cognitive therapy?
3: No. No? No, neurofeedback is basically a process by which you're giving your brain information about its own functioning in real time.
4: Uh-huh.
3: Uh, so that it can better regulate itself. And your different areas of the cortex, of course, are localized for different functions, and so you you place electrodes in ways that are very specific to whatever kinds of issues, symptoms, goals, or whatever a person is presenting with, and you train there. And um, the effects are very, can be very specific, and they can be extremely profound, but the conscious mind is really only a trivial player in the equation, the brain Can you is describe it? In.
4: Describe
3: Pardon?
0: the process. Can you describe
3: the process? of. Yeah, so you have a set of electrode sensors placed upon your scalp in whatever configuration might be, you know, uh, appropriate to whatever uh, kinds of things you happen to be presenting with, and those wires come down from your scalp down in, uh, into an amplifier that then amplifies that signal. Uh, in a way that can be viewed on a computer screen that I'd be sitting in front of uh, that shows the raw EEG, electroencephalogram, your brainwave activity, Uh in addition to this lovely 3D compressed spectral array, which is really cool, where you can see, you know, what, if there are various uh, different sorts of events occurring in the EEG, you can see what frequency and amplitude or whatever that they occurred at. Um, But anyway... um, more so based upon what a person tells me about what they're experiencing, because I see this as largely a subjectively driven process, I will set goals for their brain um, that are specific to their concerns and also designed to be very stabilizing. Um, and, uh, like and what? well, like frequency what? related goals and placement related uh-huh. goals and, and things like that. So they're supposed um, to
0: produce a frequency
3: no, they're not on producing. Command? their Their brain is is focused on a certain band of frequency that it is operating in, and the brain focuses its attention there. It's sort of like if you go to, say, uh, say you have a heart condition, you go to a doctor, and they say, well, you got to get on an exercise program, you have got to do a cardiovascular thing. So then you go to a gym and you find a personal trainer. And that personal trainer will take, you know, all your intake information, and, and based on your age, weight, and fitness level, etc., they may decide to set you up on a treadmill to kind of, you know, do do a workout. And they'll have a way of calculating based on the information they have about you and their own experience what ballpark of uh, pace that they want you to work out at. And it's going to be different for everybody, but they have ways of calculating things in general. Well, if that pace is too fast for you, that may be counterproductive. If the pace is too slow, that may be counterproductive. But the goal is to find a pace that puts you in your zone. And the zone may shift a little bit in the beginning, but eventually you find a, a zone in which uh, you're exercising your heart at a certain frequency or a certain rate, I should say, of a certain pace. Uh, you're getting your heart rate up, in other words. But not so that your heart can race all day long. You're exercising your heart at a certain pace so that later, after you leave the gym, now your heart is a little stronger and a little uh-huh. more resilient, a little more flexible, able to withstand a greater variety of challenges imposed upon it. And over time, as you get a, more of a cumulative effect with this training, uh, you know, yes, your heart function is likely to improve, but so do a lot of other things. Uh-huh. And I think that that's a reasonable analogy for neurofeedback. But where it differs is that in neurofeedback... Um, unlike physical exercise that you have to maintain at least a couple times a week for the rest of your life, with neurofeedback, there tends to be a finite number of sessions people need in order for the brain to kind of get it. In other words, there's a conditioning process, but there's also a skill-building process occurring where the brain is learning how to manage its own states. I have a colleague in Los Gatos, California, who's a neuropsychologist who, who kind of coined the description that it's a little like learning how to ride your bike on bumpy terrain. Now, I would add to that excellent description with the lights on because we're all kind of riding around on the bumpy terrain that is our brainwave activity. The problem is that it is, um, you know, we don't necessarily see where we're going and we hit a bump or a pothole and we get thrown. And that's, you know, into dysregulation, whatever that dysregulation might be for you. So uh with neurofeedback suddenly you're in broad daylight, you see the, the, the terrain ahead of you and you learn over time uh to navigate it better, which may either mean um uh you know, learning how to avoid those potholes or being better able to compensate for them when you do hit them so that you're less likely to fly off into dysregulation and sometimes i think of it as putting a guardrail up on that kind of windy treacherous highway of life you know it doesn't mean you don't go flying sometimes off the edge but you're much less likely to do so there is a strengthening and a stabilizing effect that this process has upon the brain but also some very specific effects when you know that you can um, get with moving placements around so ultimately, though, it's it's about navigating the terrain better and not about changing the terrain. So it's not about fixing broken brain waves. It's about uh, the brain getting to look at itself in a mirror and say, "Oh crap, I do that. <laughs> oh no." And you know, if you're walking in front of a department store window, for instance, well, say you know you're walking down the sidewalk and you have a you have a low back pain or your, your back is feeling funny and you can't figure out why. And suddenly you walk in front of a department store window and you look up and you see yourself walking kind of hunched over and, and stooped. You go, oh, crap, And you, you know, no, no wonder I feel like that, and you stand up straight. Nobody really had to tell you to do it, but it took getting that information in order to be able to make the change you needed to make. And that's, I think, a pretty good analogy too. Um, my job as the neurofeedback practitioner it's to make sure that the brain, whoever's brain, is getting the appropriate information at any given time and that the mirror that the brain is looking into is at the appropriate angle uh, and the, that the lighting is appropriate, just tossing a bunch of analogies around. And so, okay, effect, so it's totally non-invasive. That's the beauty of it. And it's ultimately very self-empowering.
0: So if I came to you, say, as, as, a, as a patient, yes. and I would have what kind of problem i would have um uh, let's say depression okay uh since you know we started kind of talking about that and that is a widespread problem and i have had depression but i don't have depression on this diet so i really don't have depression but anyhow say i had depression and you have a specific pattern of placing electrodes for the problem of depression is that it
3: no, it's a little different no. for everybody. It depends, because nobody ever just walks in with just one thing, right? We all have a kind, of, kind of a constellation of symptoms and issues. If you go to a medical doctor or even most naturopaths and you say, look, I've got, I'm feeling depressed, but I'm also kind of anxious a lot of times, and, gee, I kind of uh-huh. have some trouble paying attention to things, and, oh, by the way, I get migraines every month, and uh, I don't sleep very well at night. They're going to tend to take on that Newtonian model of looking at you as a collection of parts, uh, very compartmentalized, and they will. You'll probably walk out of that office with either a half dozen prescriptions or a whole shopping bag right. full of supplements, because these things are seen to be compartmentalized and not related to one another. With neurofeedback, basically all when and everybody that comes in has a whole bunch of things. Nobody ever has just one thing. So what right. I do is I get a very thorough history about who that person is, what, you know, where their brain and nervous system have been all the years prior to them walking into my office, what their huh. symptoms are, what their issues are, what their goals are, what their struggles have been, what kinds of stressors they've faced in their lives and how their brain has responded to those stressors in the past. And based and on all tells that information, you... yes, that tells me what kinds of things. And what I see with all of that, is that all those symptoms and issues and goals are just points on a constellation, and the more of that going on, the clearer the overall picture. I see them all as very interrelated, and that is how I approach it with neurofeedback. And as you can imagine, there's a steep learning curve with this with this process. It's not right. a cookie-cutter approach of, oh, you have depression, we're going to use this placement and this frequency for you. It doesn't work that way. Uh, no. Depression mm-hmm. takes on many different kinds of characteristics and has many different types of comorbidities associated with it. And so how I approach it will depend a lot on how um, you know, on who that person is. So it's Uh a very customized approach.
0: Right. So obviously you have to really, really know a lot of stuff.
3: It takes it takes a number of years. Yeah, I think to become really good
0: at it. And then and then you kind of know based on this extensive history where to place these electrodes on that person's head,
3: right? Yeah, where the starting place needs to be at at the very least.
0: Okay, and then the person, then do you say something to them or do you ask them to think about something while the process is going on? Again,
3: the conscious mind, which is easily the most narcissistic entity in the universe, (laughs) which (laughs) likes to think it's running the show, really doesn't. And and it, it is actually only a trivial player in this equation, which... Drives Type A personality, you know, personalities crazy, and especially those Fortune 500 executives that are used to bending the world to their will. Um, ah. You know, it just drives them nuts because their brain just sort of takes off and starts doing things with the information it's getting, and Makes it narratives. seems to be outside the awareness or permission of the conscious mind, which is disconcerting to that type of persona. But the beauty of it, at the same time, is that I've been able to work with say, two-and-a-half-year-old brain-injured infants or 89-year-old Alzheimer's patients or teenage sociopathic juveniles, um, all of whom either have no clue what's going on or who could give a rat's behind and would rather not even be there, thank you very much, and screw you. Um, And it doesn't matter because the brain is always going to be inherently interested in information about itself. So the brain will just simply do what it does, and all you have to do is sit down and passively attend.
0: And I have these electrodes on my head, and yeah. you're going to show me a screen that, that shows me what my brain is doing.
3: Yeah, there's a display in front of you that, that is either, uh, you know, you may see spaceships flying along, or you may see, um, you know, cars, or je- you might have a jet ski, or you might have a Pac-Man-like game, or you might even have some kind of video, and, you know, it's just sort of what, what people prefer end up preferring. Uh We have a lot of different things that we can offer. But everything happening on that screen, all of the action happening on that screen is tied into some aspect of your brainwave activity. Uh Everything happening on that screen is designed to give your brain information about different aspects, different specific aspects of its functioning so that it can better regulate itself. And when the brain decides to do something that we know might be problematic. We don't we're not so arrogant as to tell the brain what it has to be doing. But what we do is make the brain aware of things that it does that 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 may be destabilizing. If the brain does a proxismal excursion of amplitude for instance that may be inappropriate which we know uh tends to be a st- destabilizing event. We don't slap the brain on the wrist and say bad brain. It's not operant conditioning in other words for doing that. But we say to the brain, Oh, did you notice that? Oh, 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 you did it again. Did you see that? And and that is expressed through um, changes in the visual display. Uh and oh, there could really? be any so, number of so things. So it's
0: like a like a video game that your brain is
3: controlling? It's a video game that, you're, that is like a mirror for your brain. So everything happening uh-huh. on that screen is like a mirror for your brain. Your brain isn't controlling it per se. Your brain is seeing itself in it. And while your brain uh-huh. sees and hears and feels itself, because there are visual, auditory, and kinesthetic components to this feedback, that your nervous system can sort of triangulate the information. It says, oh, God, it's like walking in front of the department store window and saying, shit, I had no idea I was doing that and then you're, you know, uh-huh. you're just automatically... Nobody had to tell you how to stand up straight in that moment. You just knew to do that, and that's kind of analogous to how this is working. Our understanding of how this process works has changed quite a lot over the last you know, uh, 15, 20 years or so. We started out believing that we were in the business of fixing broken brainwaves, but there were too many things that contradicted that model, and rather than sweep those things under the rug... Um, the uh, pioneers that that uh, created this particular approach to neurofeedback, uh, Siegfried, Dr. Siegfried and Susan Othmer, who uh, I, I think are really at the most cutting-edge and humanistic approach to this uh, field, they were willing to be honest with themselves and say, well, you know, this, this contradicts our, our model, so we need to rethink this model and look at it a little differently. And over time, they've done that, which has, of course, been upsetting to some people in, the, in, in other uh, areas of the field who, who were kind of wed to that earlier model, uh, either through their established supposed expertise in that or through their own financial investment in equipment that was based on those assumptions or, you know, based on whatever else, and, uh, or just feeling entrenched. And so it's, you know, set up some controversy. There, there are different, just like with any field, there tends to be kind of polarization, fragmentation, and people off kind of doing their own thing and looking at it different ways. But at every step when we've been willing to confront the inconsistencies with the established or the early, um, earlier model and adjust our thinking and, and apply new technology to that thinking, we've been able to make greater and greater gains. That have been
0: really, okay so, truly exciting. so let me let me get back to i I'm, I'm trying to get a really good yeah. visual description for our listeners because i you know this it's kind of exciting to me to even think about it you know as as basically as I'm understanding it now, sure. but I'd like to understand it better um so the person has like a video game on a computer that their brain control what their brain is doing causes this, the images on this game to do certain things. Right. And that reflects basically what's going on in in the brain. And obviously these electrodes are connected to the video game so that the signals from the brain are causing the things on the screen to happen. And then the, the person is basically seeing what their brain is doing through the activity of this. Uh, cars or jet skis or whatever it is that's there. And then right. and then what do you do? Do you do anything like any therapeutic activity, like suggesting things, or is it just a question of the person seeing what their brain is doing, that it's like racing too fast here, say it's uh, controlling a car, uh, yes. and it, it's going too fast and it's going to hit a wall or and they need to slow it down? Is it something like that?
3: Yeah, no. So... of pretty much everything your brain is doing one moment to the next is operating outside the awareness or permission of the conscious mind. The conscious mind likes to think it's running the show. It likes to think it's important. You know, it is obviously important to some things, but it's it's ridiculously limited in what it actually can do. And at any given moment, you know, there's a greater part of your brain that is taking in tens of thousands of bits of information every moment that are from your external and internal environment, sights, sounds, smells, air temperature, internal right. You know, shifts and blood pressure, whatever else, and your brain is taking that information in and making adjustments to your physiology, occasionally deciding whether or not to throw the conscious mind a bone and make it aware of something. But that's, uh-huh. kind, of the le- that's kind of the level on which this operates. So all that's incumbent upon the person sitting in the chair, which... Honestly from my standpoint is awesome if I'm dealing with an oppositional kid who doesn't even want to be there it doesn't matter their brain is going to be inherently interested in the information that it sees and all I need from them is the willingness to sit in the chair and passively attend to basically pleasant images and sounds and and not be concerned about how that's happening or what you know are having to do anything in particular and that's wonderful because again if you're dealing with someone who is either oppositional or maybe they have um you know, like I like I mentioned, you know, I worked with once a two and a half year old brain injured infant. They had no clue what was going on. There was no asking them to do anything. Right. All they had to do though was sit in front of that computer screen and their brain was able to get the information that it needed to improve their condition. And this is also true of like Alzheimer's patients who come in confused and don't even know where they are. Um, the process seems to be able to give the brain enough information that the brain is better able to regulate itself, at least temporarily. You know, if you're talking about a chronic degenerative condition, you're not going to fix that with this. But what you can do is radically improve functioning. There was one elderly gentleman. You know, he'd come in, and um, he was confused and didn't know, even recognize his own wife, and he'd be mumbling and shuffling. He couldn't, you know, string a sentence together. And to take him back and do a half hour, forty five minutes of neurofeedback with him, at the end of the session, he would get up out of the chair and thank me, and walk back out to the waiting room. Was able to find his way back out there, recognize his wife, and they were planning whole family dinners around his appointments, so that he so that he could have some quality time with him before he started to backslide again. And so, you know, there's there's a power in this, and and over time. You know, we've learned more about the brain in the last 10 years than the last 10,000 combined. But it's still kind of astonishing how little information this is. That there is a tremendous amount that uh, that we're learning every day. And what this particular approach or model of neurofeedback allows us to do is get out of our own egos and you know, and, and get out of pretending that we know what the brain ought to be doing one moment to the next, which I think is a bit of an arrogant assumption, given how little we do know. and and give the brain the credit it deserves for knowing best what it needs to be doing, assuming that it has the appropriate information. And I think getting that information is a little startling for the brain. That might be why it pays such close attention, because it's not used to getting such exacting information. But it takes that information, and it definitely does things that are powerful and ultimately lasting in most cases. And so uh, because it's so self-empowering and so non-invasive it's the kind of thing that gets me up in the morning it really does i mean at one point you know at some point along the line i'm able to take you know 95 percent of everybody that comes through my door and hand them the keys to their brain and say have a great life and don't forget to write and a lot of them don't forget to write you know i I stay in touch with people i get to know them over the months that they are coming in and doing the training It, it takes quite a number of cumulative sessions to uh, to achieve sort of uh, escape velocity, shall we say, from needing right. to come in. But once you're there, uh, the effects tend to continue and even build upon themselves. And I have people writing me, you know, 10, 11 years after the fact, and saying, "Wow, you know, it's it's still working, you know, and that it's really rewarding." And I can Are say, a- in all honesty, that it's been 15 or 20 years for me since I uh, completed. The course of training, the forty sessions or so that I did for what I was struggling with with respect to depression and anxiety and panic attacks, and those things since then have been essentially a non issue not like I've never had a bad day since then, but you know a bad day is just a bad day or a moment in a bad day, and tomorrow's another day. In other words, what I think ultimately neurofeedback does is it gives you the ability the the flexibility to be able to move from state to state. Um, you know, based on what's appropriate at any given time, as opposed to just being stuck in the same pattern of functioning or rather dysfunctioning that at one time in your life may have served some purpose for you but suddenly becomes uh, dysfunctional, you know, when you're dealing with everyday life. And um, that, I think, has been the real gift for me and what I think is the real gift for the majority of people that come in.
0: I think that probably our readers might be getting a little bit excited about this, uh, our listeners. So uh, I want to ask you, are there uh, a lot of people doing this kind of therapy, uh, and how would they go about finding a therapist?
3: Yeah, I'd be very happy to direct people that way. Uh, If you're Uh wanting to find a neurofeedback provider near you, I recommend you go to this website. It is EEG like electroencephalogram, eegdirectory.com, and that should give you a list of qualified practitioners near you. You just plug in your zip code, and it should give you a list of who is doing you know, this in the vicinity of where you are and how far away from you they are. What I tend to recommend, if at all possible, is find somebody who's been at it a few years, and I'm also partial to people who are using the newest generation of Cygnet, C-Y-G-N-E-T, software, and also the brand new uh, Neuroamp Two, which is a, just a quantum leap in technology of EEG amplifiers. That were it's actually co-designed by a brain scientists and also uh, someone who is um, <laughs> in his spare time doing creating laser uh, satellite communication systems for the European Space Agency. So there's high technology involved in this. Um, and is there anybody in Europe? All kinds of people in Europe. Yes, and you can go to the same website to find them. Five European Also, if you want more information about specific uh, areas of, of this of this thing, you can go to eeginfo.com, and you can find uh, research. There's eegresearch.com, part of the EEG Info website, um, and uh, you can also see a number of videos that are available. Um, my northwest neurofeedback, the whole word northwest-neurofeedback.com website has a few videos.
1: We have a call, hang on. Yeah, Nora, we have a chat room going here with the listeners who are um, furiously discussing this topic with themselves (laughs) and one one of them uh, is a guy who has actually uh, had this neurofeedback uh, therapy and he asked a question uh, asked, asked us to ask you a question which is are you familiar with open focus?
3: Yes, I'm familiar with open focus. Les Femi is a uh, he's a he's a basically a neuroscientist. He's also a Zen master <laughs> and he was also a professor at uh, princeton university um i've had I've had dinner with him and his wife he's He's charming uh, and his open focus work uh, he has tapes that are basically audio tapes that he does a certain form of open focus. He also has a five channel um, eEG trainer that is actually based on inducing an alpha state. Uh, and, you know, of course, his, his orientation is, is meditative and sort of Zen-oriented, and it's about kind of creating this sort of whole brain state that has a variety of, of benefits. It's a different sort of philosophical approach,
4: mm-hmm. uh,
3: and one that a, a lot of people benefit from. I think there are benefits to, you know, most of the forms of neurofeedback training, The only ones I would shy away from are the ones that are being marketed to mainstream people through, you know, oh, here, buy this home trainer. Uh, I'm telling you uh, that this is a process that if you're not doing the right thing can make you feel a lot worse. Anything that can make you feel a lot better can also make you feel a lot worse. But anyway, Les Femi and his open focus work um, are great. Uh, It's just a different uh, kind of approach, and it caters to a slightly different um, I think range of clientele, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. Most of the people that I get calls from are people struggling with issues surrounding um, anxiety-related symptoms, depression, you know, ADD stuff, migraines, insomnia, weird neurological symptoms that nobody seems to be able to identify. I've got some interesting stories around that. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, even seizure-related uh, problems. And um, sociopathic disorders; those are always fun. Uh, okay. you know, the list really goes on and on. Anything that's under the governance of the central nervous system can stand to be impacted uh, in some beneficial way by the neurofeedback process.
0: And you mentioned so, sociopaths. Oh, we have
3: yeah. a caller. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we oh have yeah. A we got we got a boatload of up. those running things, don't okay. we? <laughs>
1: Yeah, absolutely. We'll get into that in a minute. We we have a call, uh, Nora, so I'm just going to go ahead and take it and see if we've got
4: some questions for
1: you. Hi, caller. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hello. Do we have a caller? Hello. Hi. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hello. Caller. I know you're there.
5: Oh, somebody's
3: there. Yeah.
5: Yeah, Ken Go McDonald, ahead. Toronto.
3: Hi, Ken. Oh, hey, Welcome Canadian, to... a fellow Canadian. Yeah. 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 Um, um, I was.
5: I, yeah, I do have a question. Um, in in the book, uh, which uh, which in your book, which I've read, uh, "Primal Mind, Primal Body," you talk well, about primal body, uh, primal protein.
3: mind. Just to correct you quickly, but anyway, yes.
5: Sorry. Oh. <laughs> That's okay. Uh-huh.
3: Dyslexia is a horrible disease. Yeah.
5: Yeah. Uh, You talk about uh, neurofeedback right right at the beginning, and you also mentioned near the end uh, Mind Alive, an Edmonton company. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, I've just been listening to your discussion about uh, your cautionary uh, discussion about using products um, for the consumer, which may uh, cause a problem. I'm just wondering, uh, would this, Mind Alive, uh, Dave, uh, or the CES or AVE uh, right. units uh, fall in that category.
3: Well, it, they're an entirely different type of technology. Uh, what I'm talking about when I caution people are home neurofeedback trainers. Uh, the you know the Mind Alive uh, David tools are not neurofeedback; they're entrainment tools. You can still kind of make yourself feel crummy if you do the wrong thing, but hopefully uh if you uh you know follow the directions <laughs> you know uh you know it it's it it there are some really beneficial aspects to a b e training i I actually got some very very interesting effects uh with respect to my mood early on uh playing with a v e technology It was actually my introduction to neurotechnology was AVE, which is audiovisual entrainment, is the, what it stands for, and also CES, which is cranioelectrostimulation, electrostimulation, which sounds terribly draconian, but it's almost 100-year-old research now, uh, having been done 75 right. years or something. And there's, there's a lot about... Well, CES is largely a benign intervention. Uh, AVE is... you know, I, I don't think it's a dangerous tool but I think it's one in which you need to use, um, you know, use carefully. But they, they do offer instruction in how to use it, and I think that there are viable, uh, very positive effects that you can get from it. And I still have my uh, – I still have – actually, I have a couple different kinds of the tools made by Mind Alive. and Okay. Uh, I would, you know, they're great. They're great.
5: Oh, good. It it sounds like it's uh, EEG light, so to speak, like it doesn't uh, provide the in-depth.
3: With neurofeedback, your brain is learning how to manage its own states better. With ABE, it's sort of like um, your brain isn't really being given a choice, and it's not being taught anything. It's just being dragged there, right? Whether your brain's ready to go there or not, it's being dragged there, which which might sound a little scary, Mostly it's, it's, it's not. Mostly it's really beneficial. There are programs for making you feel more alert. There are programs for helping you sleep better. There are programs for putting you in more of a meditative state. Um, and, you know, say, for instance, you want to do 20 minutes in 10 hertz alpha, you know, you press a couple of buttons and uh, put on the, the glasses and the headphones and bing, bang, boom, in 10 minutes you're doing what it took a Zen master 20 years to learn. Now, it doesn't mean that you okay. understand to achieve that state on your own or that you know there's something I think in the journey of learning uh, meditative technique but you can have very interesting experiences that help you feel a lot more centered in your life and feel help you function a bit better so I, I'm a big fan of what Dave Seaver at uh, Mind Alive is doing and if you call there tell him I sent you for sure he's um, I, I actually he's almost like a brother to me uh, he's done incredible things with AVE research and has taken a lot of the money that his company has made and has sunk it right back into really good quality research to make this a truly viably therapeutic tool. And I applaud him uh, for doing that because he didn't have to do that. But what he's really truly done is taken this thing and, and given it a lot of legitimacy Oh, good. And, yeah, so I I do recommend it.
5: Great. Thank you. I I do have another question which just occurred to me, and that is I'm trained um, in hypnosis, and I'm wondering if you've ever heard of these devices, either the entrainment or the uh, neurofeedback being used as an adjunct to hypnosis?
3: Well, that's a fascinating question. There's a form of neurofeedback training called alpha-theta training, which effectively takes and uh, guides your brain gently to a deeper states. And, and alpha-theta training is typically used for people that have um, unresolved trauma. You know, It's used a lot for people suffering from post-traumatic stress issues as well as addiction-related issues. And right. it, it basically is a process that helps getting, get the chattering monkey out of the way that mostly interferes. And, and get to the parts of the brain that don't speak verbal language, but rather speak the language of imagery and sensation and emotion and symbolism, and get that part of the brain to be able to more effectively air and integrate itself. It's very powerful and very effective, and it amounts to almost a hypnagogic state. You, it largely guides your brain down to that kind of alpha theta border, right? You know, kind of between. You know, I don't know if you know who Anna Wise was. But uh, she used to talk about oh. the brain waves as being uh, being corresponding to different levels of consciousness. So the delta brain waves are kind of the unconscious mind. The theta brain waves are the subconscious mind. Beta waves are the conscious mind, and alpha waves are like the bridge between the conscious and the subconscious. And if you ah. take the alpha and your brain into a deep level of alpha, that trickles around the alpha theta border. We all kind of plunge through that state when we're falling asleep at night. Um, You know, and and as you're falling asleep, you may kind of get some interesting hypnagogic imagery. You might even get some really interesting inspirations, creative ideas and things, and then all of a sudden, you kind of plunge through it and you drop off into sleep. With the Alpha State of Training, it sort of takes you to that point and then holds you there for a while. And very interesting things seem to occur. Now, there are things with the david device that can take you into uh kind of similar places in your brain um uh-huh. uh but you know some it that, that's, that's some people tolerate that yeah, better talk, than others yeah
5: right they talk about alpha theta mixed sessions yes yeah. and their um yeah. yep. okay
4: yep. So, well
5: so Thanks very much. I'll, I'll, I'll hang up now and uh, listen to the rest of the show. Uh, okay. over the net. Sounds good. Thanks. Oh, yep, okay, can. thanks. Bye-bye.
6: Bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Uh, Nora, I have a question about this uh, neurofeedback uh, technique. Yeah. If I understand correctly, electrodes measure local brain activity. This electrical yeah. activity is carried towards a software computer that transduces it, that transforms it, or oh, that help modulate pictures displayed on a screen. Yes. In this sense, the patient sees on the screen a reflection of his brain activity. Yes. All right. All right that's the first step. That's uh, totally new for me, but that's fascinating at the same time. So uh, try to understand better and more. Um, now, how do you correlate brain activity a specific emotion unconscious, conscious conscious thinking memory with a specific area and uh, a similar question how do you correlate specific electric brain activity with specific modulation of pictures on the screen uh, um, a simple example to illustrate what I'm thinking about um, if you display a car on the screen if you notice a higher sympathetic activity Nervousness, for example, in the brain, the car accelerate. Is there such an obvious correlation between electrical brain activity and image displayed on the screen, or is it just finally like showing the patient his EEG activity in real time?
3: Yeah, so yeah, you are seeing your EEG activity in real time, aspects of your EEG activity uh, being reflected back. And it's not about... Um, it's not like different blips on the brainwave activity correlate to certain emotions per se, although you can see, uh, for instance, uh, we're dealing in a a larger, broader sense with arousal, right? There's hyperarousal and there's hypo, you know, or underarousal. And hyperarousal may be characterized by more high-frequency activity, uh, the EEG starts to look like a fuzzy caterpillar almost on the screen because of mm-hmm. because of muscle tension and that sort of a thing. Um, and a person starts to become relaxed or drowsy. You start seeing more high amplitude, uh, maybe alpha waves or theta waves and things like that. We're not necessarily training these specific brainwave states, but we are training the full spectrum of brainwave activity occurring within certain frequency bands And uh, this is, you know, a little change in terms of how we used to think about it. Um, And so, you know, the the brain is always producing, actually, all the brain waves all the time. It's just the amounts and proportions that may be, you know, appropriate to whatever it is you happen to be engaged in one moment to the next. Um, And how the brain actually sorts this out, we're still trying to figure out. We know that the brain does sort it out. It's very apparent that it does. But the way in which it does it, we're still kind of trying to understand now. But there's also beneath the beta-alpha-theta-delta waves, there is a deeper level of activity that, uh, you know, the the analogy I come up for this uh, is uh, that I like using is, say you're out on the ocean in a kayak or something, And you're paddling along, and there are the little waves, the wind-driven waves that are lapping up against the side of the boat of all different sizes and types. And those would be kind of the equivalent of beta, alpha, theta, delta. But beneath all of that are these enormous, powerful ocean swells that come underneath you that actually are the real power in the ocean that drive the currents and things like that. And we're doing a lot of training right now at that level of frequency um, some of it's called uh, infralow frequency, or actually, we're calling it high definition uh, frequency now because it's, there's there's something very specific and very powerful about it. And there seems to be some central organizing principle there. We may even be at some level training at the glial or astrocyte level of the brain, as opposed to the neuronal uh, mm-hmm. aspect of the brain. Um, there's there's something more central organizing in that in that in that range of activity that has very very powerful effects. Um at any rate I'm I'm kind of digressing but um that sounds know, like the, it
4: could be
2: it it sounds like you could be touching on the conscious observer. Mm. That central organizing principle.
3: It's possible, no? you know. We're, possible. we're we're still trying to figure it out. Um you know, to me, it's, it's extremely fascinating because the effects can happen almost immediately in the chair with some people. With other people, the, the effects can be more gradual and incremental. But the human brain seems able to be sensitive to perturbations or, or to frequency changes that are even less than one ten-thousandth of one hertz. And the, the brain is so exquisitely sensitive uh to all of this that, it's it's you know ten years ago nobody would have thought that we'd be doing what it is that we're doing now or that the brain would be even capable of recognizing the kinds of signals that we're training with now um, and I to me it's a very exciting time to be part of this field for some people it's a very upsetting and confusing time because you know the old ways of thinking about this are are being shaken up and. You know you can imagine, as with any field, these things can be a little discombobulating but but I'm not overly wed to any particular point of view. I'm wed to doing what is most effective, and what I'm doing now and using the technology I'm using now far and away is the most effective approach um, I've ever had the opportunity to use so so it's it's very neat, of course, all this is a really far cry away from from Ice Age diets, but that's okay. So well, no we're come back to I, do, Ice I definitely Age do write diet. about um, neurofeedback uh, in, so, in my book, and so there, there are pieces of it there for sure. Before we go to Ice Age diets,
1: there was one quest, a few questions of, of a similar nature on the, in the chat room mm-hmm. about how does how do because we mentioned soci, sociopaths. Yeah,
0: we want to come back to sociopaths. You've worked with sociopaths oh, yeah. okay. and looked at their brainwaves. We, we want to hear the scoop on that.
3: Okay, all the dirt on all that. Yes, well, there's something called known uh, among psych you know in the field of psychology is something called reactive attachment disorder and the what it what it is how it is thought to originate is that somewhere between age of zero and three um the infant was not allowed to appropriately bond with the mother now whether mom was working ten jobs and just wasn't able to be there. You know, she had good intentions, but she just wasn't able to be there. Or whether, you know, uh, mom was was drunk or strung out all the time and wasn't there. That seems to be kind of irrelevant. But that there's something that is fundamental to what makes us most human That is in, and, and, and that is fundamental to the, our brain development, particularly when it comes to affect regulation and our own sense of self, that is... Extremely tied to that very early bonding period with mom. When the infant is picked up in the mother's arms and looks into her eyes, the infant's sense of self basically, you know, derives from those experiences and their ability to self-regulate, the ability to feel soothed. And you have to realize when you're born into the world, you're this helpless creature. Um, and your survival is completely dependent on your caregivers, and of course, you know that that particularly that maternal caregiver. Um, and so, when you're laying there in your crib and you're screaming uncontrollably and and terrified and whatever else, and mom is not forthcoming, um, the brain gets wired for being in a state. Uh, particularly the right hemisphere of the brain, gets wired for being in because that's the part of the brain that manages our affect regulation, our capacity to bond to other people, our conscience, or so many things about us. That part of the brain just spins, starts spinning out of control, like a horse with no reins. And the brain gets hardwired for being in a state of abject terror. And as the infant grows older, Um, if this sort of thing has been allowed to persist in a consistent or chronic way. What originally, you know, the only emotion that they had available to them up to that point was terror. Eventually that ends up translating to rage. And rage ends up being the only authentic emotion that these people have. And again, it has to do with issues with attachment early in life, and there are different levels of attachment disorder that are going on, but reactive attachment is seen as the most severe aspect of this. So what you end up with, you may have a perfectly um, intellectually brilliant person. There's nothing wrong with their left brain at all. They're able to think in, in linear terms. They're able to um, uh, conceptualize things. They're able to, uh, to achieve uh, you know, great things intellectually. But their capacity to bond to other human beings, to manage their own emotional states, to have a rich and varied emotional life, just simply is not there. And that capacity for consciousness. Yes, like Nora? And I think yes. the
1: call dropped for some reason. Sure.
7: That's, um...
3: Pardon me? Hello? Hello. Hello.
6: Okay, I think we're back, so we're gonna try and call Nora. We had like. some technical problems, but finally we solved there. This is a problem with Internet Hello? Radio. Hi, hey. Nora. Sorry about that. We uh, yeah.
1: Skype or Blog Talk Radio we just dropped our call and we were having trouble getting back. Uh, that's a problem with Internet Radio, yeah, I suppose.
0: I think that well, happened when I, you I, talk I was about that with Blog Talk before. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Apparently, Apparently the, the subject was the getting too warm. Thing yeah it's a touchy subject
0: so we we yeah, left off with you talking about reactive attachment disorder. that's where we got dropped, and you were talking about uh uh the the very serious repercussions of the mother not being able to bond with the infant or vice versa Mother right. is uh you know going off to work or doing whatever and and the child is not getting bonded okay that's where we right
3: want. right so it turns out that it is it's critical the development, the appropriate development of the human brain, and particularly the parts of our brain that make us the most human, to have that bonding take place. It, it, it's part of how we develop our own sense of self at that age, and, um, and we learn by looking in our mother's eyes you know, how to regulate our own emotional states uh, better. And also, there's that whole aspect of vulnerability um that when we're an infant we're incredibly vulnerable
4: uh
3: and we uh you know if we cry for help uh we need to know that there's someone there and if mom's not there for whatever reason uh we're basically taught on some you know really really very primal level of our being that we're on our own that there is nobody there to help us which is an incredibly terrifying, uh, you know, state to be in. Right. And when this kind of thing occurs chronically, this kind of, uh, this, this state gets hardwired in. Right. Uh, and that hardwiring leads to, you know, the right hemisphere going into a state of extreme over-arousal and not ever really fully developing Uh, the connections and and the things that it needs in order for us to lead a rich and varied emotional life. Uh, We're not able to move from state to state relative to what's appropriate. We're not actually able to feel much of anything except the only authentic emotions become terror as, 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 you know, in the state of infancy, of helpless infancy. And as we get older, that emotional state seems to translate into a state of rage. And the rage is the only truly authentic emotion really had by, this, uh, by somebody suffering uh, from this uh, issue. And um, when they go out into the world, they may be able to function intellectually just fine. They're oftentimes brilliant. They may even be charming on, on the surface of things. But there's a coldness. There is an inability to, have, to experience any form of empathy at all. Now, we you know naturally, our prisons are overflowing with people like this, and our serial you know the serial killers and the and the sociopathic um, you know personas out there uh, and and also a lot of uh, our residential treatment facilities are overflowing with these kinds of kids but you know the the scary part the even scarier part is the fact that Uh, We also have corporate boardrooms overflowing with these kinds of personas. And people, because when you have that sense, that foundational insecurity, um, your your only source of safety comes with power. And uh, you only feel safe when you're experiencing power over others. And uh, there's no... Capacity for compassion. There's no capacity for empathy whatsoever, and in fact, that 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 power um, is is critical at any cost, literally any cost.
0: Can and they be so fixed?
3: It, it, yeah. It, it well, yes. As a matter of fact, the only thing that I know of that is able to have a real measurable impact on this type of issue, uh, on reactive attachment issues is neurofeedback. And it was something... What about something psychopaths that,
0: that, are, that are born that way? I mean, Robert Hare
3: But that's just it. Paul. Human beings are not born that way. They're are just you sure? Not. Yes. Now, I think that we know that certain things, certain types of exposures and sensitivities and things like that can, can generate psychotic behavior. I mean, I'm going to be actually one of the featured presenters in this upcoming Gluten Summit... That's occurring on a, it's gonna, it's a worldwide thing, but it's, it's going to be uh, online. And if people go to my website, primalbody-primalmind.com, they can register for this thing. The, uh, the airing of this gluten summit is free. Um, and it will feature some of the most pioneering experts on the subject of gluten sensitivity and celiac disease and all aspects of that, uh, immunology. In the world, um, some of the top scientists and educators, and and uh, and and uh, experts, and I, I'm very honored to be one of one of the very few that have been selected for this. Uh, but one of the things, for instance, with respect to, say, gluten sensitivity, is that there are uh, proteomes of gluten, like protonorphin, glutiamorphin, that are opiate-like compounds. There are some people that have. A profound sensitivity to these compounds in such a way that um, it can literally generate um, uh, almost psychotic kinds of effects. And you see a, a, a significant percentage of people with suffering from what seem to be psychotic disorders actually have sensitivities to some of these proteomes. Um, so you can see these kinds of behaviors. In fact, I work with kids all the time. That are prone to just seemingly um, nonsensical psychotic behaviors. Uh, that you know, who radically improve with dietary changes, and also who radically improve with neurofeedback. And you know, so often what I see are are people who are literally imprisoned in their own um, bodies and nervous systems, where the brain is running off like a horse with no reins. And uh, it's not who the person is; it's just the condition that their nervous system is in that they're completely incapable of self-regulating. Are so, there any
0: that you've never been able to fix?
3: Well, fixing is a is a relative term. What I see, I've never not been able to impact an individual with reactive attachment disorder, and that that's that's just kind of wild to me uh, that I'm able to say that. But I've worked with. I don't know how many kids now, and even, even an adult or two, um, who I was able to observe um, over the course of training make absolutely astonishing uh, changes. And it, it, it doesn't solve all of the problems that an individual like this might have. You can imagine mm. that somebody with a nervous system that's, that's, that's this foundationally dysregulated being given a real reason to be pissed off, you know. They're also maybe they were sexually molested, or maybe they, in addition mm. to everything else, they were beaten mercilessly. You know. I mean, I think people like Adolf Hitler and Himmler. I don't. I don't think they're born. I think that they're made, and mm. I think that there are a combination of factors that lead to um, to the kind of molding and and you know the. Um, uh, and and the mutilation of people's psyches. And hmm. I, I think there are a combination of factors involved, some of which are going to be biochemically founded in, in biochemical dysregulation due to either certain, uh, you know, sort of exogenous exposures. But, um, but would, all of the, would
1: all of the people, Nora, sorry for interrupting, would all of the, that's a, would it be fair to say that all of the people that, you're treated who you may show a kind of sociopathic kind of personality disorder uh, or, or some symptoms of that 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 came to you or that you know of that engaged in this kind of therapy. But they did so willingly.
3: Well, it's almost always kids that are being brought in.
4: Okay,
1: and yeah. And a lot of times so kids who've
3: re- been adopted. You know, you, mm. you like get a call from a parent, you know, who they adopted this Romanian orphan or, or you know from wherever China or wherever. And mm-hmm. you know they thought they were getting a cute kid, and now they're terrified of this child that that, that doesn't seem to be able to bond to them, that uh, is very manipulative, very controlling in their behavior, um, mm. that they fly off into rages at the drop of a hat, and some of these parents are literally terrified; these kids are going to knife them to death in their sleep. That they mm. seem to have no conscience, and it's mm-hmm. terrifying. And they have problems at school. They have problems with, you know, they. Some of these kids are um, part of what characterizes this is the ability to, you know, be sadistic to other children or to small animals. Um, you know, you see that type of behavior. Mm-hmm. And so
0: you would um, you would say that a parent uh, who is dealing with a child who has some kind of uh, uh, reactive disorder of this type or rage problems or out of control that...
3: Uh, yeah, rage uh, problems can be a lot of different things. There's also pediatric bipolar. There are you know other they could types come in of emotional disorders. Yeah, Pardon? but
0: they could come in and get some, some kind of help or relief through
3: neurofeedback this. Neurofeedback definitely can be helpful in all of these cases. There's no question. Right. And, and what's cool about neurofeedback is that you don't need a diagnosis to do this process. All you need is the ability to describe what it is that's going on with you, how you feel and how you function, um, and how you're feeling and functioning you know, during and, and following uh, particular sessions. And over time, you know, the cumulative effect tends to allow these people, especially the, the reactive attachment types that we're talking about, it warms them up. It puts them in a uh-huh. the place where we're able to wind down that excitatory activity in the Rhine hemisphere that calms them down Um, and in particular the amygdala of the brain, that part of our brain Uh that that regulates fear response. And these people, that's just like a runaway horse with no reins. And to be able to calm that part of the brain down and and assure it, reassure it, that it's not being chased, that there aren't saber-toothed tigers and boogeymen hiding behind every bush, um, it doesn't solve all of the psychological issues that they have. But what it does is it warms them up in a way that can then more effectively allow other interventions to take place. Psychotherapy uh-huh. doesn't work with these populations because in order for psychotherapy to work, you have to have a capacity to bond with another human being. You have to be able to bond with that therapist, and they just they don't. And so it's a big manipulative game for them. Uh, but, but following a course of neurofeedback, it opens that door up and allows them to kind of let people in more. <clears throat> Um, I see kids coming to a place of having the capacity to attach. Um, I see them coming to a place of suddenly exhibiting empathy and concern for others in a way and developing a conscience in a way nobody around them ever would have thought was possible. And um, I've had DHS contract with me. Uh, At at times I've had them them knock on my door a number of times saying, you know, wow, Turns out what you do is the best thing for the populations we 've got. We want to contract with you, but i don 't take Medicare you know doing what I do, so sometimes that 's problematic. but on occasion we 've been able to work out arrangements um, for making for making it work and uh, and helping uh, these kids out. There was one very interesting occasion where I had an older lady. Uh, Call me and say, "Hey, do, do you work with adults?" And I'm and I was taken aback a little bit because usually, you know, it's it's hard to drag an adult in. And I said, "Well, you know, an adult with a reactive attachment." And she said, "Well, actually, it's me." And she said, "You know, I I, I had this thing from early on, um, but her parents, at least, were people that um uh that had a good kind of." Uh, moral and ethical foundation for her, and 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 were generally kind. They just there was there were attachment issues earlier on in her in her life that that kind of got in the way. And she had grown up and had had a couple kids of her own, and she saw these children running off to school and having friends and experiencing things that she herself had never been able to experience. And she recognized that there was something wrong with the way she experienced. That she recognized the fact that she didn't feel the love she knew she was supposed to have for her, child, for her children and for her husband. It was all very interesting. And this was a psychologist, by the way, and also kind of a minister. <laughs> so oh dear. They, had, they were in a very, very interesting position in life. They weren't sociopathic, but they knew that they were disturbed by their lack of compassion for suffering around them. And you know, her children would cry, and she'd feel nothing. Um, oh, she dear. felt like like her husband and kids could drop dead and she'd feel nothing, and she also saw them having she saw her children having experiences with other kids that were re- really rich for them, and she envied that and knew that there was something she was missing, and so she was smart enough to figure out what had happened to her and cared enough to want to do something about that. And, and did she? Uh, I remember. Yeah, it was really interesting because at one point uh we were, I, I don't know at what point we were in the training process, but she was telling me this story of how she was looking for a school for her, her for kids. They were like toddlers, and they were really attached to the, all these friends they had at the school they were at, but she, she and her husband wanted them to go to this other school that they thought would be a better opportunity for them. And they, um, she thought, well, you know, let's explore this possibility. And so she took the kids to the new school took her son to the new school just to kind of, so he could kind of get a feel for it. And he immediately caught wind that something was off, and he looked at the new school, and he looked at his mother, and his eyes welled up with tears, and he said, I'm not ever going to get to see my friends again, am I? Because she, he felt he was being taken away and put someplace else. And she started to cry, and she was weeping in front of me. And talking about this, and she could barely even speak. She was just so emotional about her son's suffering, you know, in that moment. And yeah. I just sat there and blinked my eyes and I said, do you kind of see what's going on here? <laughs> I said, you're experiencing, you know, empathy how many, right now.
0: How many sessions does it normally take?
3: Well, I usually tell people somewhere between the first and the tenth session, you start to see shifts. Uh, you, you, we, we would expect to start seeing um, something, some meaningful shift, something noticeable. It Doesn't mean that you get everything that you're going to get out of it in that number of sessions, but you start to see a positive movement. Ideally, um, that's usually a pretty good trial to figure out whether or not this is likely to move you and whether it's going to move you in a way that's worth your while. Um, and um, so, and the the things that you experience early on may be may be subtle, or they might be quite pronounced. But it'll be little, you know, a lot of times with these kids, it'll be little things like, oh, you know, this thing happened that normally would have sent him off into a rage, and he just sort of shrugged it off in a way that shocked the whole family. You know, we'll hear things like that. Um, and these effects, these positive things can backslide out quickly if you discontinue the training, but over time, there's a, the ultimate effect of neurofeedback training is cumulative. So over time, you, these things start to build on themselves. And the positive experiences that people generate um, from their different ways of responding to the world around them, <coughs> have a tendency to also create more cumulative effect. So, in other words, when the kids are aren't, you know, abreacting or misbehaving, people around them start responding in a more positive way, and that reinforces the better behavior in its own right. So, over time, there tends to be advancing improvement. Um, 20, 30, 40 sessions? For, the, you know, for most garden variety things, that's what <clears> I expect <throat> to see. With something like reactive attachment disorder, it can easily be double the number of, of, of those sessions. It's a long road to home. 80 or 100, huh? Yeah, something like that. It used to be a couple hundred. And oh, my when we've made When we made the shift to these different ways of looking at things and the newer technologies that seem to be more powerful, we seem to be doing more in less time. As uh, Nora, go
6: on. Uh, yes. to understand better neurofeedback, um, step two then, if understood correctly, is to reinforce brain electric activity within specific frequency range, right?
3: Well, again, it's not operant conditioning, but we are asking the brain, just like setting a, a pace on a treadmill for somebody who wants to run on a treadmill, we're setting a pace. We're asking the brain to kind of be here for a little while and see how that feels for you. And we make adjustments based on what people report in terms of their experience of functioning at that pace. Or how do you functioning... make the adjustments? Yeah, how do you make
0: the adjustments? Do you I will like... adjust
3: either the frequency that the person is training at, in other words, you know, or I will adjust uh, the placements. I might move placements around.
0: So, there's a signal going through the electrodes to the brain
3: No, no, that's an important thing distinction that the feedback all goes in one direction out of the brain, through the therapist' computer, through the uh display computer, and back through the eyes' ears and and uh, also there's a kind of a uh, a so
0: how do you make an tactile
3: portion of the feedback? and so it all moves in one direction there's nothing that goes mm. into the person's brain I'm not there's, no, there's no way I, that you can electrocute somebody there's no electricity being put into their heads it's the only information in, coming in
1: yeah the changes in the in the effects that the person is experience are via the screen or the program that is giving feedback
3: you change the images and then uh, I don't that, change the images g- their brain changes the images uh, <laughs> yeah, by virtue of whatever it happens to be doing and the brain sees itself reflected, and the brain makes its own adjustments based on what it sees about itself. I don't tell the brain what to do, and I don't punish the brain for not doing what I think it ought to be doing. I'm just giving the brain appropriate information, and the brain takes it from there and makes the changes it needs to make.
6: So basically, the discovery at the core of this therapy is that the brain is some kind of self-regulating device that only needs... Data information about itself in order to properly self-regulate.
3: Well, the brain is a coincidence detector, and it it very much notices things that uh, that happen to correspond to whatever it happens to be doing. So, the brain will take that information, and it will, and and it it does things that definitely make measurable changes in people. Um, And obviously, we're we're doing is using the brain's own electrical signals. And uh, <laughs> reflecting aspects of those, because elect- we, we select certain aspects of those electrical signals and we reflect those aspects back on itself and the brain takes that information and, and does what it does with it. And we're in the process uh, always of trying to better understand what it is the brain is actually doing with that information, but clearly it's doing something that makes a big well, difference. Well, since we
0: we're about to the end of this particular. T- I think we ought to talk about the Ice Age diet because I. Yeah. We kind of advertise. <laughs> yeah, it's kind we of funny. We, we digress a bit. But yes. I, uh, I got it's so fascinated bit. by this this topic that I just, you know, I really had to know. But I obviously I'm going to have to try it myself, see how it works. Uh, can you pack your equipment up and fly to France tomorrow?
4: <laughs> <laughs> oh, sure, no Beautiful problem.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're you know we're in the south of France, you know, nice chateau. Great vacation Lovely. time. I'll take
3: that. So, so <laughs> if yeah, you, I might if actually be there next year, but that's a whole other that's a whole yeah? other subject. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So if
0: it'll fit in your suitcase, you know, that's that's cool. cool. Yeah. Um,
6: maybe the most important sentence in your book is this uh, quote from uh, this anthropologist Boyd Eaton: "99.99% of our genes were formed before the development of agriculture," and this developmental perspective is the it was on well tenet of um, your analysis of human diet.
3: Yeah, yeah. The, clearly, we have to look at how we evolved in order to understand uh, what kinds of things are likeliest to support our 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 best interests, our, our health and and well-being, our nutritional requirements. I see that as an essential starting place, and it's clear that. Um, that agriculture was really not our friend when it came to to, the effects that it had upon our health, upon even our our uh, brain size. We've lost more than 10% of our brain volume since adopting right. an agricultural diet. Um, there's so many things that, uh, that have served to kind of diminish the robustness of the human genome since the agricultural revolution that it's not even funny, but of course once we hit the industrial revolution a couple hundred years ago that really started to accelerate things in a way that um, that compromise um, everything about us and i think with with each uh, with each change to our environment into our food supply that we're not capable of adapting to by the way because it takes much too long genetically to adapt to major changes And these changes now, especially with respect to our food supply, are like a moving target. Um, You know, every day they're creating a newfangled food or food-like substance. Every day they're hybridizing wheat, for instance, and creating 5% new proteins from every hybridization that we have no way of being adapted to. Or they are genetically modifying something to create, you know, the sort of Island of Dr. Moreau effect in our food supply that we have no possible way of adapting to. And as time goes on, um, we're increasingly compromised by this. I think we're actually more vulnerable today, and in a much harsher environment, if you will, than uh, than our you know our hominid ancestors that emerged into human form as we know it 200,000 years ago um, were experiencing. Even I would take the pros of the most nasty, cold, uh, bitter and harsh ice age to the sociopathic ideations of companies like Monsanto any day of the week. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's a world in which we are left with precious little, if any, room for error anymore in terms of what we have to do in order to maintain some modicum of actual health. And yeah, I I'm, think uh, I'm not even we're... sure that optimal health is possible anymore, but I, I yeah, do think that. Yeah, because I don't
0: that... think uh, I don't think that we evolved in an environment that was quite as toxic as this one, and we have these wonderful exactly. detox systems in our body that right. evolved to deal with toxicity as it was then, not as it is right. now. So now, you know, if you have a you know, your liver's functioning well, and you're eating plenty of fat, and you keep that. Uh, uh, that liver working on the fat because that's one of the things that helps to detox it, I think that uh, we have to help the liver a lot
3: because otherwise yeah.
0: we can't survive in this environment.
3: I got news for it. I mean, everything needs help. I mean, every single organ and system of, oh, of yeah. ours is in need of some support. And, yes, detoxification is a really important piece, uh, but also providing the nutrients that we need in order to operate all the various systems and unfortunately, you right. know, our soils now are just so severely depleted. Even our organic soils are so severely depleted that we have a fraction of the nutrients now, even in organic produce than um, or, or meat for that matter, than our ancestors might have had, you know, um, even 100 years ago. I want to pose um, it, a little question.
0: Uh, you may not know, but my particular subject is history. And uh, one of the things that I noticed just off to the side is because I have to read a lot of archaeological studies, you know, to try to make a critical analysis of a historical uh, narrative. Mm -hmm. And uh, quite often the archaeological studies, you know, identify a group of people as hunter-gatherers or as agriculturalists by virtue of whether or not they have rotten teeth. And right. if I've read it once, right. I've read it ten thousand times. Well, these were hunter gatherers because they had perfect teeth and they had no bone diseases, you know. And there's, and they were robust in size. But right. one thing that I noticed, and uh, because right now I'm working on a um, a history of that goes through our recorded period, where we have some narratives, some actual uh, rec- records of things that happened. And what I noticed was, because I'm focusing on plagues and, and catastrophic uh, decimations of population,
4: mm-hmm.
0: was that uh, those individuals that survived plagues, including the Black Death, or the plague of Justinian, or the Athenian plague, which was what is uh, 3, 348 .BC, and then uh, 540 .BC. 80. and then uh, 12, 12 1247 uh, for the Black, Black Death. That the people who survived best seemed to be meat eaters, and the ones who died the first and died in the greatest numbers were people who ate primarily vegetables or bread that they right. i mean there 's even a story there 's even a story in the Koran about the, the grandfather of Muhammad who saved his tribe by feeding them meat broth during the times uh, following the plague of Justinian. Uh, and then there was stories of uh, Julius Caesar wrote about uh, the Germanic tribes and how they were so much stronger and healthier than, than we Romans, he was saying, because they are bigger than we are and they eat nothing but meat. We eat bread. And right. it was apparently the Germanic tribes that survived the plague of Justinian, which wiped out um, European, the Western European population and essentially caused the collapse of the Roman Empire. And at present, what we're looking at, historically speaking, is we're coming around in a cycle. And to my way of thinking, and based on the history, the most likely thing to occur to our population in the probable not-too-distant future is another plague of the type of the Black Death, which had, you know, a 50 to 75 to 80% mortality rate, depending on the area and what the diet was. So um, I would like to ask uh, how do you feel about the prospect of you know, maybe encouraging people to change their diets for that purpose alone because it, uh, it makes you much more impervious to such diseases.
3: Well, it does. You know, and I, I talk about, you know, we, we're taught, and nutritionists are taught, that, you know, we're of necessity, we depend upon glucose as a primary source of fuel, and that's just simply not true, or rather, more accurately, it's only conditionally true. This is only true if you have metabolically adapted yourself to dependence on sugar as your primary source of fuel, which is a terribly um, uh, vulnerable kind of fuel to be dependent upon, Um it's It's extremely volatile, extremely unreliable. It burns hot and it burns quickly and and it crashes. And you're having to take constantly in um, uh, new sources of glucose in order for uh, or new you know some new substrate in order to keep that blood sugar level going. And of course, the body is right. obsessed with maintaining the the lowest level of blood sugar necessary at any given time. Um, uh, and so, you know, your body will tend to burn it off quickly, and uh, the result is a constant need to replenish. And and in my book, one of the things that I do is I draw this analogy of carbohydrates fundamentally for our metabolic fires being kindling.
4: Mm-hmm. And yeah.
3: you know, if you're talking about, you know. Whole grains and you know beans and brown rice and sweet potatoes and things like that. You're basically talking about the equivalent of throwing twigs on that metabolic fire. Right. Um, white white potatoes, white bread, pasta, um, and white rice and rice. Uh, things of this nature. Cereals, whatever, are largely the equivalent of throwing crumpled up paper on that metabolic fire. Alcohol and and sweeten things tends to be a little bit more like throwing uh, alcohol or gasoline on that metabolic fire. Mm -hmm. And if all Mm -hmm. you have, if you have a a wood stove in your home that you need to heat your house with and all you have is kindling to run it, you can certainly do that. But what you're going to be doing is you're going to be enslaved to being parked in front of that stove and preoccupied one moment to the next with where the next handful of fuel is coming from to keep that fire going. This is a highly inefficient way to live, and I personally have better things to do than live my life that way. Thankfully, we're designed to make use of two types of fuel as a primary source of fuel. And more naturally, we are actually better adapted to making use of fat as a primary source of fuel. It is literally the equivalent of throwing a log on that metabolic fire. When you do that, you're able to go about your life, and you're not preoccupied anymore, with where the next handful of fuel is coming from. Now there's a, there's a period of adaptation when you're switching to one primary form of fuel to another, um, and there, there can be things that can ease that transition, and I talk about that in my book. But, but ultimately, what you're doing when you metabolically adapt yourself to more of a fat-based and what it amounts to is essentially a healthful uh, ketogenic diet, Uh, where your brain is burning mainly ketones for fuel, which it does much more efficiently and much more effectively and much more safely uh, and and in a much more stable fashion than it would ever use glucose. Uh, And um, you're literally free. It's liberating. Now, if we want to go conspiracy theorist for a moment, I, I can think of almost no multinational corporation in the world that would not be heavily invested in every man, woman, and child on this planet being dependent on carbohydrates as a primary source of fuel. Of course. eh? It is highly profitable. You get about a 5,000% profit from a box of cereal, and it's a type of diet that keeps people perpetually hungry. It also makes us much more vulnerable to, uh, oh God, any number of disease processes. Virtually everything associated with the diseases of Western civilization can be traced to when we switched from a 90% animal food-based diet to a, to a 90% plant-based diet. And I, I'm not saying that plant-based foods, especially fibrous vegetables and greens, aren't important to us. I actually think they're more important to us now than they ever used to be by virtue of all the phytonutrients and all of the uh, antioxidants that they provide us with to kind of deal with the toxic, toxic load this world seems to dump on us every day. But in terms of sugar and starch, um, you know, we've come to a place now uh, where we used to depend on one to 200 species of animal uh, types of foods for our subsistence, and meat and fat were making up roughly 90% of the human diet for most of our evolutionary history. And I I can back up what I'm saying by the research of people like Dr. Michael Richards from the uh, Max Planck Um, uh, Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany, who's doing what is called um, isotopic, stable isotopic analysis of bone collagen and studying ancient human remains from all time periods of our evolutionary history to find out exactly what we were eating. And what he's found is that not only were we high-level carnivores through every period of history they've been able to examine remains from, but we were higher-level carnivores than even bears, wolves, or foxes or other carnivores of the time. And I think the reason for that is that we, for a good part of our evolutionary history, uh, were hunting megafauna. Uh, uh-huh. These enormous uh-huh. animals that um, that bears, wolves, and foxes didn't have the technology to bring down, but we had the cleverness to be able to do that. And, of course, you bring down a woolly mammoth and you've got a family barbecue that's going to last a good week. So... Um, just just on the... very high-level carnivores, and and we we're eating a lot of fat along with that. I mm-hmm. mean, the... were really really rich in fat.
1: Yeah, on on the vegetable topic,
3: um,
1: I mean, to what extent do you think there are actually the, the the pros outweigh the cons of vegetables? Because vegetables are associated with, um, you know, insoluble fibers are associated with, um, you know, gut irritation and inflammation. So, I mean, is there really anything that valuable in diet that, that can't be obtained from meat and fat?
3: Yeah, because of many of the phytonutrients and antioxidants. Now, it's true that if you overdo fibrous foods, that those fibers, uh, fiber can bind uh, and, and phytic acids and things like that can bind with minerals and make them unavailable for absorption. Now, the inflammation and bloating or whatever that you were talking, gastrointestinal upset with respect to plant fiber, is mainly associated with people who are suffering from small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which is actually Mm. a relatively, seems to be a relatively new affliction in the human species. In fact, it gets kind of creepy because what they're finding in the small intestines of some individuals is that... Um, you know, the small intestine is not supposed to be a sterile environment. It, it's supposed to contain some organisms, but it's not supposed to host enormous colonies of bacteria. And what they're finding increasingly are these rod-shaped, gram-negative bacteria that are clustering around the villi and microvilli of our of our small intestine, absorbing our nutrients so we so we can't. Um, like parasites. And also generating and generating lipopolysaccharides that actually have similar effects to gluten on our gut um, uh, that can increase intestinal permeability and, and inflammation, uh, that some of these bacteria have never before even been um, identified in humans. Uh, and and we think this has something possibly to do with the genetic modification of the food supply. Whatever it is, it's very creepy. And, and yeah. SIBO is something, not everybody has it. You find larger percentages of people suffering small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO in people with pronounced gluten sensitivity or celiac disease. And people who hmm. you know, subscribe to the Gluten Summit can find out a lot more about that. <laughs> um, but um, it's, it's, it's showing up ever increasingly. And people who don't tolerate... So oftentimes the things that people think of as being supportive of their colon health you know, we're going to take, oh, we're going to take prebiotics, we're going to do inulin, or we're going to do FOS, you know, fructooligosaccharides, or we're going to supply extra fiber or whatever else, um, those very things will actually make a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth situation worse.
4: Mm-hmm. So
3: it's important mm-hmm. to identify that condition. And, uh, and then, you know, there are ways of treating it. And there are precious few people in the world who are actually expert in that particular type of condition. In fact, the research only goes back maybe five years now. So Mm -hmm. it's that new. Um, I have a colleague named uh, Dr. Allison Seebecker who actually, she's a naturopath, but she's one of the most comprehensive experts on this particular topic. She's one of the rare naturopaths that has chosen to become highly specialized in a particular niche, which is this particular issue. Her website is s i b o dot com and she has ways of she has articles and information but also ways of people kind of self screening for whether or not they may have that condition and it 's something to look at um, but otherwise, I think plant based foods may have more importance now, if you have somebody with that particular condition, they may not be able to tolerate uh, raw vegetables they may have to really cook those vegetables thoroughly in order to be able to digest them or make use of them without them causing discomfort. Uh, Juicing those vegetables, as long as you're not adding sweet stuff to it, may also be a way of getting concentrated phytonutrients and antioxidants in without the damaging or irritating fibers associated with them. So that Mm. is another possible way of doing things. Um, I think to our ancient ancestors, I think those foods were far less likely to have been that important. But as mm-hmm. time goes on, I think the the greater variety of antioxidants and phytonutrients we can put into ourselves probably the better, given the toxic environment that we now live in. I'm not saying legumes? that we start being vegetarians, but I'm saying that I probably eat more vegetables than most vegetarians do. But I also, you know, get my primary caloric intake comes from meat and especially fat.
0: Mm-hmm. What, what
3: about lectins? Lectins are a real concern, and those are primarily associated with things like grains and legumes. You find mm-hmm. them mostly in those kinds of foods. Um, I, I worry, you know, less about some of the goitrogens and things you'd find in, say, cruc- cruciferous vegetables. And things like that, because those really don't have that much of an impact. Honestly, I, I think that that's kind of an overblown concern, but it's, it is a legitimate concern coming from something like soy, where those effects can be extremely pronounced. What about carbohydrates? Effects. Carbohydrates right. and vegetable. Uh, well, if, if you're you... talking about like broccoli or asparagus or whatever, it, it's virtually negligible. Uh, in terms of sugar and starch content. I mean, all vegetables are carbohydrates. You know, green leafy vegetables are carbohydrates. However, mm-hmm. when you're talking about the sugar and starch content, particularly sugar and starch content that's utilizable by us or that might generate an insulin response, it's almost negligible. So so I we can add a lot, lot
0: more vegetables
3: to our diet, yeah. uh, especially
0: if we juiced them or cooked them thoroughly. And right. Make if, sure to if you're keep... prone to
3: irritation, you know, uh, in your gut by eating, you know, I say that vegetables are, you know, there are pluses and minuses to eating them raw versus eating them cooked. Obviously, there are anti-nutrients in, raw, in some raw vegetables that can ha- be neutralized by cooking, but there are also enzymes, beneficial enzymes and nutrients that may also be damaged by cooking them. So there are pluses and minuses. I say eat some raw, eat some cooked ferment your vegetables, culture them. You know, make your own mm-hmm. sauerkraut and, you know, things like that, and you'll end up uh-huh. with actually more nutrients than you had from the original uh, fresh-picked vegetable, if you do it right. And you end up with a, quite a few beneficial uh, bacteria as well, which we can always use, you know.
0: Uh, well, we do make our help own sauerkraut. When it comes to
3: repopulating our internal natural wildlife.
6: In your book, you describe the... <clears throat> excuse me, the diet of our ancient ancestors eating mammoth and occasionally fruits. But, and today it's difficult to mimic this diet because the breeds have been so hybridized that the meat is very lean, it's mostly protein, and the fruits have been so hybridized that they are full of sugar. Right. So there are some adjustments. Yeah. We cannot uh, eat uh, only uh, meat and fruits.
3: Well, I don't. Tradition. I don't actually advocate eating much fruit at all. I, I'll eat yeah. berries here and there, but I don't. Most modern-day fruit, you know, hybridized fruit growing <laughs> in the orchards is nothing like the wild fruit you'd find in the forests and fields and and things like that. That you know, most fruit today is basically bred for its size and its sweetness, and that's about it. Um, some things, though, like like berries and you know pomegranates are probably in, in, in a good category too. There are a few things that actually seem to have some measurably beneficial uh, polyphenols and, and things of that nature. But um, otherwise, fruit is such a minute part of my diet. There are many days I go by without eating any. I don't think it's essential for anybody, but I think that there's some some. Potentially beneficial compounds in some of them, and if you eat a handful of those a day, I don't have a problem with that. But I don't necessarily advocate fruits as being the uh, belonging in the same category as vegetables in terms of having, uh, you know, a lot of benefit. Um, But Nora, are you are you working on another book? Are you working on another book? Well, there are a couple of different things that I'm working on, I actually, in in the next, uh, within the next month or so, I will have uh, an e-book coming out, actually probably a couple different e-books coming out, Um, Uh one on the subject of adrenal, uh, trying to bring the whole issue of adrenal health into the 21st century, because Uh most of what people have learned about adrenals and adrenal fatigue and all that kind of stuff is... Based on 1950s um, <clears throat> science that actually is really no longer true. Um, okay, well we're getting towards
0: we're getting the towards end the here. end here. And we'll, could you give uh, the important websites to the listeners yes. one more time? Yes.
3: www.primalbody-or-primalmind.com, and please sign up for the free newsletter. You'll also find uh-huh. I have a a two-CD set there that talks about optimizing human and planetary health. This is a talk I've given in Australia and New Zealand uh, recently and I think is an excellent introduction in a pretty comprehensive way about how this way of eating can not just optimize our health but also help restore the health of our environment, of the planet, possibly even do things to have a measurable impact on climate change. Um, and so, I, I you know, I, I heartily recommend that CD set. I also really recommend people sign up for the Gluten Summit coming up. Um, is the, when the summit airs, it will be free. It will, it will feature 29 of the world's uh, best recognized experts in the area of health and in the area of, of pioneering uh, gluten research. Uh, some of the best scientists in the world will be there. I mean, it's an astonishing event. And I'm very honored to be one of the experts selected to be presenting. But are you even kidding? If I you are the
0: expert. You are well, the
3: expert. Well, I know. But, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're I, so I'm happy really to honest. have
0: you here.
5: I mean, oh, I have learned
0: so much. I have learned so much. I mean, th- this whole thing about the neurofeedback this got me really excited. I'm glad you talked about the vegetable, you know, because that was really. Uh, uh, really kind of a touchy issue for me because I've got a son who has both celiac and IBS. You know, so, ah, I mean, it's...
3: so he's a SIBO guy. I'm, I'm telling you, yeah. the, the odds are that he has that, that condition. I would go to that website I mentioned and, and look it up and, and, and see if, say if it you again. can find is, a way to get further screening.
0: Is, say it again, SIBO.
3: I would, I would go to that website I mentioned, SIBOinfo.com. You know, S-I-B-O. explore the information okay. there. Yeah, and see if you can find some additional screening. Another ebook I have coming out in the very near future and an online presentation I'll be making available as an information product uh, as part of what I'm calling my Primal Restoration Series. The first one is going to be about adrenal health, the, uh, and it's really going to change the way people think about this. The next one is going to be on the silent autoimmunity explosion and uh, information that, you know, I, I doubt your many of your uh, listeners have ever, ever encountered. It's going to cause a lot of buzz, and it's going to be a lot of I'm going to love it. I know it. I'm yep. going to love it. Yep. No, it's, it's, it's really, really... I, I actually did a, a, an abbreviated version of that talk for the Weston Price Foundation conference recently and managed a, a standing ovation at... at eight o'clock in the morning, so I'm not surprised <laughs> I't I'm not about four hundred people so it was it was a it was a um it's it's powerful and very timely information
0: you are so, so loaded um, with information with knowledge and so articulate and everything's right at the tips <laughs> of your brain tips you know whatever
4: <laughs> There never must
0: seems be to that.
3: be enough time <laughs>
2: it, 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 it
0: must be those ketones.
2: Nora, yeah, thank exactly. you so just, much. Thank you so much for so coming on the show today, and thank you for your efforts in educate, educating people on the paleo diet and on your on feedback. Very interesting.
3: We're your fans. So, oh, thank you. I, you know, I'd love to come back. Um, I I really like what you guys are doing. I've taken a you you you. Know, look at at your website, and I've, I've actually been to it before. And in the past, and um, you know, clearly the lights are switched on and somebody's at home, and it, you, yep. know, you need people that are kind of aware. We're gonna, we're gonna talk some more. To, I'll yeah. tell you, we're gonna talk we'll some more. We'll
1: get you back. All, All right, Nora. Listen, thanks, thanks a million again Thank for being you. on the show, and hopefully we'll get to talk to you again soon. And when you come to
0: I France,
6: so. bring your electrodes and visit us. <laughs>
4: yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we got
0: cool. Okay, you here. got it.
6: Wire <laughs> us? <laughs> All right. Sounds
4: Thank like a deal. Know. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye.
0: Yeah, goodbye.
1: Good night. <laughs> okay, folks. So, um we might just have a little summation here uh of what we talked about. We didn't talk about a lot of the things that we wanted to talk about because we got We didn't?
4: This. Well, well we talked about such cool things. I
1: know, but it it wasn't we weren't necessarily on topic, if you know what I mean, in the sense that we started off and we used more than half the show on the neural feedback thing. So But, but I that's think good.
0: I think our listeners are gonna be very happy because this is fascinating stuff and I know right offhand ten people just personally who are gonna go out and try this, including me.
7: And yeah.
6: The guidelines of the book are finally quite simple. You eat as much fat, animal fat as you want. You limit protein intake to fifty grams a day, and you reduce carbs to zero or maximum five, five grams a day, and then you're going to live a wonderful life. Yeah, it unfre- is this simple. Unfre- it is
0: a fountain of youth, and forget about global warming.
6: <laughs> or yeah,
0: because we are or, going or, into an ice age.
6: Forget about trying to change,
1: you know, do something to help the planet in terms of climate change. That's all a bunch of nonsense.
6: <laughs> well, uh, I think Nora acknowledged <laughs> <laughs> that. She she writes in a book. Ice sage occurred every 11,500 years and the last I had sage ended 11,500 years so you do the math yeah. and uh, the perspective she sees she knows are similar happening. to ours yeah uh, people but, uh, it depends on the we, oh, sorry I'm
1: just responding to a question from Jordy on the uh, chat room here 50 grams of protein a day it depends on the person Mm-hmm. get it what worked right for you type of yeah. thing but I, exactly. when it
2: comes to vegetables I suspect in Nora's case she's eating a lot more vegetables than some people might because she's extremely active maybe I didn't get to ask her about that because she We're, says in her book that it depends on your exercise regime
1: we have a call here I'm just going ahead, going ahead go ahead and take it uh, because I don't want to leave anybody hanging hi caller what's your name where are you calling from
7: Hi Joe, Uh, this is Clay. I'm from Indiana.
1: Hey Clay, welcome, welcome to the show. Nora's gone, so I hope you have a question for us instead. Yeah,
7: that's (laughs) cool. Um, Yeah, I just wanted to say I work in healthcare. I'm a Uh uh, nurse, and uh, it's just it's such a um, disparity to see uh, the way that um, the food pyramid is. just pushed onto everybody, specifically the diabetic folks. Uh, Mm
4: -hmm.
7: You know, somebody's diabetic, and so we give them a carb-controlled diet, but we're still giving them a starch, a bread, and a vegetable at every meal.
4: Mm
7: -hmm. And then we wonder why we have to load them up with copious amounts of insulin. (laughs) Yeah. Um,
1: It's it's crazy. It's outrageous. Really, when you think about it, that that is what's come to where you're going to your health professionals or whoever, and they are actually giving you the worst thing they're poisoning. for your condition. Given, you, right, you, and you, we're, they're given we're to taught that in
7: school, and, uh, and then we're supposed to relay that to our patients. And, you know, of course, the majority of us are uh, very unaware that what we're uh, teaching our patients is ultimately what's going to kill them.
4: <laughs> uh uh-huh. Um, yeah.
7: Instead of actually uh, uh, promoting something where, you know, like like uh, a more um, rounded animal fat diet that uh-huh. would keep their sugar at a more level base, um, more than likely, if you give a type 2 diabetic uh, a high-fat diet, they won't mm-hmm. need any orals and they won't need any insulin injection as well. Mm-hmm. It's uh, It's just crazy. But, of course, me, you know, I cannot be... I can't really suggest that. I can, but I'm not a practitioner. Therefore, you know, I would be, I guess, practicing medicine if I tell my patients, well, you know, this is what you should do. I can uh, subtly suggest things. But it's just, I don't know. It it was just something that was on my mind. I wanted to speak with Nora about it, but I called in too late. I apologize. But um, anyway, I just want to say I love the show, guys. Thank you so much. And uh, I'll let you go, but Thank have, have a good you evening.
1: Thank you, Bye.
2: Well, what Nora said in her book was basically take the USDA food pyramid and turn it
1: upside down. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much and, it. And I empathize with, with um, Len there and people in his position who are, who are nurses. His name was Clay, I think. Oh, oh sorry, Clay. Clay. Sorry. sorry, Clay. I, I empathize with you and with other people. There are other people I know who are listening who are in the same kind of uh, profession. And it's very difficult. To be aware of the information and then have to go out there and see what's going on It can be very disheartening. Uh, to, to go and do a day's work and realize that you're actually feeding the system that is actually killing people, you know.
0: Interestingly, nurses uh, seem to be more on top of what is good for people than the doctors yeah, because absolutely. they work hands on with mm-hmm. the, with the patients, and the doctors just see them for a few minutes. Uh, consult their uh, physician's desk manual and give them a prescription and go away. You know, and doctors are taught nothing about nutrition.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would just say to uh, people like Clay that you know, do what you can where you, where you can, and you yeah, may have a little a little effect. You know. Yeah,
2: you can refer people to to Nora's book, for example. I mean, Nora herself, she has a cautionary note at the beginning of the book. She's not actually in a position. She's not a, a, mm-hmm. a licensed doctor. She's not in a position to give specific guy for your advice but that's not going to stop her bringing all the research together and just saying here are the facts Mm
1: -hmm. you know one of the other horrible things in line with that uh, what Clay was saying about diabetics you know your diabetic and your doctor tells you to or or the the system tells you to eat carbs and stuff which is the worst thing for a diabetic and it's just going to make it worse uh, is I mean most people it's it's fairly well established uh, scientifically that sugar tends to feed bacteria and even viruses and cancer and cancer sure does that. And if you go to your doctor, if you've got a flu, you feel a flu coming on, or, or in the middle of a flu or a cold or something like that, go to your doctor or go to the pharmacy, and they will. Well, w- one of the things they've done for many years is say, eat some oranges, you know, because of the vitamin C. But mm-hmm. it's loaded with essentially glucose, which will feed that fructose. Uh, or uh, fructose was turned, yeah. So that That's will actually, you know, exacerbate your s- situation. Yeah. I mean, it's
0: horrible. And it's exactly of... the opposite. It's it's like it's so anti-health what what's being practiced today is just, it's just nowadays is not fit to drink it's just as bad for you probably as as a coca-cola or, yeah, but
1: when you're sick and and what's what, what feed, the illness you have the virus you have feeds on sugar and, and you go to the pharmacy and they say, you hey, have some sugar essentially have some sugar feed that virus so make it spread throughout your body more mm-hmm. that's how bad it is you know
6: well, what Nora says about fruit juice is uh, juicing is fine you juice a fruit you throw away the juice which is water and sugar, sugar. Again. and eat the skin. And you eat the rest because that's where mm. minerals and nutrients are. Get rid of the juice and eat the pulp. Yeah, and about di- diabetes, uh, an important point Noah stressed out in a book is that you need a carb restriction, drastic, almost zero carb, but also limit proteins to 0.8 grams per for, body weight per kilo. Ideal body weight. Kilo one gram per kilo. Remember a
0: lot of people think in pounds and a pound is uh, a kilo is 2.2
6: pounds right and uh, other because otherwise excess protein beyond uh, 0.8 grams per kilos of body weight is transformed into sugar so carb restriction is not enough.
2: Now our caller Clay brought up the extreme form of uh, what happens when your your insulin goes haywire, Mm -hmm. diabetes. Mm -hmm. Nora explains in her book that this the there's a much wider problem, basically all affecting all of us in the same way that there's this celiac disease mm-hmm. that's actually the so called iceberg i e everyone is sensitive sensitive to gluten to gluten the same goes for uh, yeah. your, your your levels of insulin mm-hmm. and they, they have a they have a name for this now it's just, well it's not even a name it's just syndrome x mm-hmm. basically everything goes into there what it means is that it's uh, it's also called metabolic syndrome mm-hmm. it basically means that everyone has problems with insulin resistance
0: I because eating too much sugar. So you're saying yeah. that uh, diabetics and people with syndrome X are like the tip of the iceberg or the canary in the mine for everybody mm, else? For everyone else. Mm-hmm. So everyone the else. same way that celiacs are like the canary in the mine for everyone else. So people should be take cutting a lesson. out the grains, <coughs> people should take a cutting lesson. out the sugar, you know, cutting your carbs back to almost zero, limit your uh, protein, protein uh, maybe have some juiced vegetables and some cooked vegetables. And uh, when we talk
6: about fat we talk about animal fat. Avoid yeah. absolutely vegetable fat, hydrogenated or, fat and trans fat. Just Which think just about never your eat evil. margarine. Just think about
1: the term vegetable and fat. When you <laughs> look at a vegetable, does it look like it's got some fat in it? It's water. No. But
0: you are to, what you eat. Do just you to, want to be a broccoli?
1: Just to end on some on a on a conspiratorial note. Um I find it strange and almost beyond coincidence that, okay, we can allow for the multinational corporations chasing profit (laughs) and they will push all of these foods on us, cereals and grains that make us hungry and give us diabetes and make us ill because it's cheap for them. But when you look at the whole system, surely the odds are that somewhere along the line there, they would have hit on one thing that was also cheap, that was good for us. How can it be that literally everything that is in that, Food pyramid or in what is on the shelves in the supermarket is bad it's not only just bad for people it's killing the it's entire pleasure. human race It's how can that be? Not how, only how, that, what of they all? that would be everything.
0: Not only that but when you eat that food then you end up giving all your money to the pharmaceutical companies for the pills that they prescribe yeah. for all the conditions that you develop from eating this horrible poisonous diet so they get you not only are they making money off of giving you cheap crap as food, but then they're making money off of, you know, medicating you because you have become ill from eating their cheap crap.
1: So you're saying there's a conspiracy to make people
6: ill? I'm
0: saying there's a uh, conspiracy, yeah. To make people ill? Yeah, I think and I know it. Yeah, I think it's like kind of like genocide.
6: And the dumping down of the population. Nora writes in her book, and she misquoted herself actually during the show, she writes as much as 10 percent of human brain size has been lost in just the last century alone and during the show she said since the beginning of uh, agriculture so there is a dumping well, down of population to make people well let me, let me
0: let me correct this just a little bit she made the remark that we would lost a, a lot of our brain size since the, at the beginning of agriculture and this is true archaeologically there is a very definite difference between Uh, human brain size, body size, uh, bone health, tooth health, between uh, hunter-gatherer societies and those societies that undertook agriculture and this was this happened within a dramatically short period of time of taking up agriculture so there was there was a a reduction in brain size uh, very early on say nine ten thousand years ago and then You know, since then, people have just been getting smaller and smaller brains, especially those that are living in industrialized countries that uh, survive primarily on agriculture. It's a conspiracy.
1: There you have it, folks. It's a conspiracy. You heard it here first. Well, maybe not. Anyway, we're going to end there. We hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, Thanks to our callers and our chatters who have been chatting furiously and having all sorts of fun in the chat room, and anybody who isn't in the chat room should get on there for every show it's just so much fun um, we'll be back next week with another show of some description we haven't figured it out yet but we will be here so until then have, have a good one thanks for listening good night. see you next week and good luck Bye. eat more bacon and eat more bacon